Would you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians. Have you ever been separated from someone that you love? How do you bridge that gap? Uh, Some of you have had long-distance relationships of various kinds. Sometimes work takes a a spouse or a parent away from the home for extended periods of time. Some of you have dated long-distance. That's what my wife and I did for a year uh, she, we both had graduated from college, and I was entering uh, graduate school, and she went home to Michigan, and so for a year, uh, we tried to bridge that gap through long-distance phone calls, which we thought we had a really good long-distance rate of five cents a minute. Some of you are old enough to remember those days, right? We were all switching phone companies from AT&T to MCI, uh, and what other, other options were there, and uh, that was something that, you know, before smartphones came out. And we also relied on good old-fashioned letter writing. And I actually kind of mourn the loss of that. Um, I think we could all do it, but few of us are prone to it because we are communicating all day long every day and we don't feel these needs to sit down and kind of summarize the last several days since we last wrote a letter or since the last expensive long-distance phone call. And those letters sometimes uh, are, are fairly mundane and routine, and sometimes they're an outpouring of a heart. And we actually still have some of the letters that we wrote back and forth in that year that we were apart. I still have some letters even that my mother, who's been with the Lord for about 24 years, wrote to me uh, while I was away a couple of different uh, stints in college where I was away from home. And, uh, you know, they're mostly just news of what's taking place at home, but they're also expressions of a mother's heart. And, you know, those become really valuable. Well, what you are holding open in your Bible is a letter that would be an expression of great affection and love and care and concern Actually, not just from the Apostle Paul, but from two of his partners in ministry that we're going to be introduced to a little more closely this morning. One man named Silvanus, or Silas, is a shortened version of that, and the other man is named Timothy. And these three had partnered together, as we'll see this morning, for a very brief opportunity in Thessalonica before things got hot, and they actually had to escape uh, from the city. But their concern and love Uh, beneath that concern, compelled them to stay in touch with this church. And this letter is part of how the Apostle Paul in particular, led by the Holy Spirit of God, communicated important truth, pieces of his heart. More than that, though, pieces of God's heart for his followers, people just like us. And so that's why even though this letter is 2,000 years old, close to it, it's still as relevant for God's people today as it was when Paul first penned it. And I want you to think of this in the way that you would if you had discovered uh, an old box of old letters hidden in an attic somewhere or a basement, and you suddenly realize these were written by somebody who was dear to your heart, and you would probably stop any of the organization or spring cleaning that was underway, and you would just sit and immerse yourself in the letter. And our prayer is that in the coming weeks, we can immerse our hearts in this really valuable letter. So as we come this morning to God's word, think of it in those terms. 
Now, we're actually only going to look at verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, but we are going to go back to Acts 17 uh, because we need the backstory. And I've titled this message this morning, To the Church in God, and you'll recognize soon enough that that's actually part of the salutation uh, that Paul lays down here. So let's just read this verse. You follow along, please. It's very brief. And keep your Bible open, though, because we're going to go back uh, a few pages to the book of Acts before long. But this is the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Would you pray with me as we do each week for God's blessing? Father, as we open your word, it is with expectation and hope once again, and we pray that the Spirit of God who has been given to instruct our hearts and to lead us into the knowledge of truth would move in and out of these rows, but more importantly, in and out of our hearts, convicting us of sin, convincing us of of truth, persuading us right here, right now, as he did long ago with Thessalonians, that Jesus is the Christ, the one whose death and resurrection makes all the difference for our personal destiny, the one whose death and resurrection makes all the difference for us as an assembly. Come now, Holy Spirit. Come and do all your holy will for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for the joy of our hearts, for the transformation of our homes, our communities, our workplaces, our very lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few things about this church that I want to summarize here at the outset. It is a church, first of all, founded by faithful leaders. And I want to introduce you to these three men. Now, I suppose many of you would be able to give uh, a number of things about Paul in particular, maybe even Timothy. Silvanus is the lesser known of the three in many ways. But I want you to note some things if we were to uh, kind of go back and survey the New Testament and pull out a few little uh, pieces of, of trivia almost, personal information about him. It gives us a really interesting perspective. So let's summarize this really quickly. Uh, a few thoughts there for you. Born around the year A.D. 10, Uh, Paul was actually a son from a family of Pharisees. We know that from the book of Acts. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, as he has noted in the letter to the Philippians. And thus, some speculate the reason his given name, his Jewish name, was actually Saul. Saul was the first king of the tribe of Benjamin uh, from Israel. He was from Tarsus of Cilicia. That's not in Israel proper. That actually was uh, a Hellenistic city and Uh, governed by Roman politics. It would be uh, a little broader opportunity for Paul to grow up in a city like that where his education was formed by much of the popular thinking of his day. But there came a point where Paul left home, and by the way, Acts 23 tells us that he had at least one sister. We don't often think of Paul's family, uh, but he's a real guy like you and me. But at one point, he left Tarsus in order to attend school in Jerusalem and was trained under the famous Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of one of the most famous Pharisees ever, Hillel. The the historians tell us that even to this day, Hillel's teachings and traditions are studied by those who have given themselves to the Orthodox Jewish faith. We know Paul and love him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is just a term that means sent one. Now, there are capital A apostles and little a apostles. 
And by that, I mean capital A apostles are those uniquely chosen individuals who were establishing the early church right after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Uh, I don't believe personally that capital A apostles exist in our day. But are there little a apostles sent once abroad? Yes, we're blessed this morning to have the Karpenkos with us. They're mission partners of ours uh, who, who actually serve and live most of the time uh, by God's will in Israel. Uh, we could refer to them uh, as sent ones out of uh, Utah and, and partner churches like ours. His conversion story Uh, Back to the Apostle Paul, though, in Acts 9 is rather stunning. And the irony that God Almighty would convert the murderous persecutor who was initially known as Saul and transform him into the mighty preacher and missionary he was is nothing short of breathtaking. But that's what Jesus Christ does. He finds the, the people we would suspect least, even those that we might say, that guy will never you know, do something of a religious nature. That guy will never be a follower of Jesus Christ. But Paul was. And conversions like his give us hope even for the most hostile, the most aggressive, the most angry enemies of the gospel. Well, after his conversion, God actually took him into the Arabian wilderness for three years And then there were another 10 years of preparation, we believe, as we kind of survey the story of his life and piece together the information that the book of Acts in particular gives us, as well as some of the other New Testament letters and books. And as you might expect, when Paul, uh, because he was known as Saul the persecutor, when he shows up and says, I've met the risen Christ, I've been converted, the church itself was really suspicious, if not just terrified and fearful. Like, yeah, is this just a ploy of yours to get into the church so you can persecute us and do us harm like you've done to so many others? But a man named Barnabas shows up. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement and whose life was just a powerful source of encouragement, he steps forward with Paul and says to the church, no, this is real. He really has come to know Jesus Christ and he really is chosen by the Lord as an apostle. And so he began ministry partnered with Barnabas. And there comes a point if you're reading through the book of Acts where you, you reach chapter 13 and the church that was, had been established at Antioch is fasting and praying to discern God's will about who should go and, and continue the next leg of gospel mission work. And the Holy Spirit tells them it's Paul and Barnabas. And so they are launched into what we often describe the first missionary journey, and they visit a variety of cities. Well, there's a second missionary journey that unfolds. I wish I had time for us to read through Acts 15 and 16. Paul and Barnabas actually part ways, and it's actually a disagreement, one that we don't fully understand, but their, their disagreement had to do with John Mark and whether he should go along with them. And Paul said, nope, he abandoned the calls earlier. I'm done with that guy. And Barnabas said, no, this guy is worth hanging on to. Those two men could not agree about John Mark, and so they actually went their separate ways. That's when Paul chooses Silvanus as his next gospel partner. And so they begin Paul's second missionary journey. 
And that included a a really great stop in Philippi, that's Acts 16. And then uh, they got driven out of that city, they were imprisoned and beaten, things did not go well, but a church in Philippi was founded even through that uh, difficulty and persecution. And then suddenly they are, are on their way out of town again, leaving the hostile crowd behind them, and they land in Thessalonica. So go back to Acts 17 for a minute because we're actually going to read through a portion of this uh, in, in just a few minutes and you'll be ready for that. But first, let me tell you about Silvanus, uh, also known as Silas. Well, he, if you read uh, some of the key chapters in Acts that deal with Silas or Silvanus, you'll find that, that he was among the leading men in the church at Jerusalem. Not a capital A apostle, as it were, but a prominent leader. He's described in Acts 15, 26, among men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's described in Acts 15, 32, as having a prophetic gift. And by that, we mean he he didn't simply uh, foretell the future events as the Spirit of God might have revealed them. No, he was actually proclaiming God's truth under the power of the Holy Spirit, would bring messages to assemblies just like this, probably speaking many of them from the Word of God. The Old Testament is what they were working with in those days, but still speaking as a messenger from God, words that would have encouraged and edified and built up the church. He's known as a prophet. Then you come to 2 Corinthians 1.19 and find Paul recounting some of their history, how together they had proclaimed the gospel among the Corinthians. They had evangelized uh, the the city of Corinth and and another church had been established and people built up in the faith. And then finally, uh, the reference is not there, but that last descriptor of Silvanus is that he was a faithful brother. That's Peter's word. So this is a man who moved and served among the apostles and was used powerfully of the Lord to establish the early church. And that brings us to the third character, Timothy. According to the book of Acts, Timothy was a, uh, a native of Lystra in Galatia. So not Tarsus, not Jerusalem. He's from a different city uh, in a different province, if you will. Also grew up uh, in, in a Greek culture, what's interesting is that his mother, who is referred to in the New Testament letters, uh, was a, a Jewish woman by birth, but a faithful believer. Father, his father was Greek, and we don't believe he was a believer. So he grew up in a, a, a mixed faith household, if you will. But he heard the gospel from his mother and a grandmother who is named in one of the other letters of Paul, and he believed in Christ. And look at some of the words that describe him there. Paul counts him as a brother and a fellow worker. He's beloved and a faithful child to Paul in the Lord. This is a young man that Paul mentored and loved and worked with. And eventually, probably about 10 to 12 years after this particular uh, ministry in Thessalonica, Timothy becomes the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And so we have a letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. We have the two books that bear his name, letters that Paul wrote to him personally, uh, the first letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy. Uh, there's, there's quite a, a good deal of information about the church at Ephesus, and at least for a period of time, it was pastored by this man, Timothy. How do three men born in three totally different cities, in, in very different cultural settings in some respects, How do three different men with 
distinct backgrounds end up partnering together as leaders, and at this moment, they really are the pastors of the church at Thessalonica. Well, it's just a reminder that Jesus Christ really means it when he says, I will build my church. Because part of building a church is to raise up leaders, pastors, who will preach, who will teach, who will serve, who will love, who will lead, who will guard, who will do all kinds of things. And that's exactly what God has done. So this is a church that had faithful leaders from the start. It's also a church in the second place established in the gospel of God. Now let's read just a few verses from Acts 17. Acts 17, one, really if you wanted to read everything in that chapter that includes Thessalonica, you'd have to read even down to verse 15. There's a little comparison in that section. But we'll just read the first four or five verses here. Now, Acts 17 tells us when they had passed, and it's speaking of Paul and Silvanus, and we think Timothy was right there at this moment too, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so over a period of three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now look at the result of this. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. These are probably Greeks uh, who were in the synagogue, or at least nearby, who were interested in the religious teaching and such. And then there's a third group here that's mentioned, and not a few of the leading women. We don't know how many that is, but not a few. What's the implication? There were many, right? People are hearing the gospel proclaimed, and they are responding. So Thessalonica, even in a three-week span, a relatively brief period of time, becomes a fruitful place of spiritual harvest. Now, that is a little bit surprising because Thessalonica itself, to give you a little history and background, was the proud capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It had a population of over 100,000 people. There's a natural harbor and, and the placement of it on this busy east-west uh, trade route of that day, as well as a key north-south route. It made it a crossroad, so it was a flourishing center of trade and philosophy. It was a free city and was governed by local officials called politarchs. And religiously, the city was committed to the Greco-Roman pantheon and the imperial cult. Egyptian cults were also prominent, and there was a sizable population of Jews in Thessalonica, so writes one historian. So what a big city. What a deeply religious city. What a diverse city. What a wealthy city. But it's a needy city. A city that needed the gospel. And isn't it Powerful to think of how God used these three men who were hightailing it out of difficulty in Philippi, though God had blessed their ministry there, who keep making this journey, land here. Paul says, let's go to the synagogue. And remember, he grew up as a Jewish Pharisee, so he knew exactly what routines uh, were going to be in place, and he uses that opportunity to say, ah, you might actually want to think about those Old Testament scriptures in a particular way, and he points them to Jesus. And people start responding. 
Well, if you read through the rest of the story, and we won't take time, take time to do that this morning, but there's religious opposition, there's false accusation, and before you know it, a civil disturbance uh, has erupted, and verse 8 tells us that the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So on the one hand, you have a group of people who are responding to God's truth, believing it for the salvation of their souls. A church is beginning, a little church is beginning to form, but you have other people who are saying, this is not good. And so as you read on to verse 10, you find the, what we might say is an unexpected departure. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away and, and probably Timothy to by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. That, that's where Paul always goes. But those three weeks gave birth to something really significant. And it's a reminder to us that this is a church that was established in the gospel. That's what Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were offering to these people. That's what they were teaching and dialoguing through in the synagogue on those three particular Sabbaths. That's what they were giving to people. And people were hearing it and responding it. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. And notice how Paul describes the church. And this reminds us it is a church assembled by the living God. To the church. That's a term that you encounter throughout the New Testament. It's a Greek term that actually was used in non-religious writings to refer to any kind of uh, assembly of a group of people. And sometimes there would be a call that would go out uh, to a community or a neighborhood saying, you know, the, uh, the, the leader of our community wants to meet with all the residents And that term that we have here, translated as church, refers to an assembly like that. So it could have to do with public affairs uh, for citizens of a, a city or a free state. But in the New Testament, this term refers exclusively to the people of God who have been summoned by God. Now we're gonna unpack what he summons us with and to in just a moment. But when you think of a church, you should not think of a building. You should not think primarily of an organization. You should think of people who have been summoned by God, brought together by God for a specific purpose. And so in the New Testament, when we encounter this word church, uh, it, it should speak something really meaningful to us. I want you to think for a moment, though, that if God is summoning or calling out people, that would be a literal, very literal and somewhat pedantic translation of this this term, ecclesia, for those of you who care to know that kind of stuff. It does raise the question, though, what have we been called out of and what have we been summoned to? And you begin to think of what the scriptures tell us, we're called out of our sin, We are called out of all those dread consequences that accompany our sin. We're called out of our unbelief and into personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is by faith through grace alone. We're called out of a world system that is hostile to God and called into his kingdom as citizens of the heavenly realm. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ is how the New Testament describes it for us. We are called out of 
all other religions and faith systems. And you see some of that as you dig into the background of Thessalonica and see that some were called out of that Roman culture of pantheism. Some were called out of some of those Egyptian religious cults. Some were called out of secularism, as is true of our day and our culture. But all were called into the one faith that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And as it did in Thessalonica, so it does in our day. When the one true God summons a people to himself, it, is always and un- it always and unfailingly results in a church. The gospel call is not a lone ranger call. Sometimes we're a little too possessive of, you know, like it's just God and me. Well, praise God, he has called you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave you on your own, doesn't want you to live your life on your own. He calls you into an assembly just like this. And that's where the next phrase becomes significant, for Paul says, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians, people from a variety of backgrounds who have no other reason to assemble on a given Lord's Day than that God has met them personally, rescued them from their sin, called them out of this world system and into a personal relationship. So they gather, but it is the church in God the Father. There is no true church apart from a vital, personal, eternal, and I would even add corporate union with God the Father. We are his children. We are joint heirs with Christ. The church is so much more than an organization. It is the assembly of people who are dearly loved by God who reveals himself to us as Father. What a privilege that is. Do you know him in that way? Do you know him personally, first of all, as your father? Do you have confidence today to say, God is my father? And, and you say that in faith because you know that his only begotten son, his one-of-a-kind son, came into this world to die for your sins, to rise from the tomb as the verification that he really did finish all that was necessary for our salvation. Do you know that personally? Some of you can't really say in that intimate way, God is my father which means you can't actually share the beauty and power of that truth with the people who are gathered around you because we are a church in relationship with him as our God and Father. Then look at that next phrase, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church also finds its summons to faith in all that Jesus Christ is. He's the one who died on Calvary's cross for our sins. We sang of that in multiple lines uh, earlier in the service. He's the one who rose again from the grave on the third day. He's the head of the body, as Colossians tells us, which is the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the one who ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father until all things are subjected to him. The church has no existence apart from Jesus Christ. It is summoned to him and by him, and we have our life 
life in him. And for the Thessalonians, if you're still looking at your Bible, drop down to verse 9 of chapter 1 when Paul recounts how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Then verse 10 he says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Some of you know about Jesus Christ. You even believe that he really did enter the world through, as the Christmas story recounts. You have no problem affirming that there is a supernatural thing taking place there. Virgin born, you can check that box. You have believed these things in your mind and even assent to the story, but do you know him personally? Can you testify, as the Thessalonians could, that yes, I've turned from other forms of religion. I've turned from maybe literal idols. I've turned from figurative idols in order to enter a relationship with this Jesus by faith in his death and resurrection. We're united to Jesus eternally by faith. We are members of his body. There are other passages like Ephesians 5 where the Lord himself wants us to understand the the intimate nature of this passage or, or of this relationship, and he describes it in Ephesians 5 as a marriage, Christ being the, the groom, the church being his bride. Do you know him? So Paul is writing to a church of Thessalonians, some of whom are Jews by birth, some who are Greeks by birth. Some, as Acts 17 noted, were counted among the leading women from that city, but all of them have been summoned by the living God to assemble in his name in relationship with God the Father and in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what makes a church. But that brings us to the fourth part of this salutation. It's a church strengthened by the grace and peace of God. Oh, these are two of the greatest words in the Christian faith. How would you define grace? How would you explain it? Some people think of grace as what God contributes to make up the gaps that exist in our faith. As if we might contribute a certain percentage. We give our part and we may say, oh, I'm a little short. God, could you make up the difference with your grace? You know, and like a a kind grandparent pulls out an old billfold and says, here's what you need, son. That's actually not biblical grace. That might be a gracious act to make up the difference. No, grace, uh, as the Bible explains it, is the free, unmerited favor of God. And here's the critical part. For those who positively deserve his condemnation, it's the free, unmerited favor of God for those who positively deserve his condemnation. What does that mean? Very simply, it means you and I are sinners by birth. We're not only born in sin, but then we act on it. And in short order, I mean, we accumulate a debt of sin that we could never repay, a debt that we actually are required to pay. But God, in great kindness, shows up and says, you know, there's a way for that debt to be paid that doesn't include your ultimate condemnation, your eternal judgment. My son bled on Calvary's cross. My son fulfilled the law perfectly. What if I do you a favor and I first clean and remove all of that sin debt off of your record through the blood of Jesus? And then number two, how about if I credit to your soul 
all the perfection, all the righteousness of Jesus, my son. Do you see how very different that is from saying, you know, God, if you'll give me uh, some time, I'll, I'll work hard to pay off my debt, and then maybe I can make a few deposits into the bank of heaven. And then whatever I'm sure, you know, when I stand at the pearly gates and Peter says, why should I let you in? You know, could, could you make up the difference? Could you give me some grace? But that's how a lot of people think. I'm gonna do the best I can. I, I'm gonna work really hard at this and try to bank as much credit with good credit with God as I can and then I, I just hope he makes up whatever difference is still left that, that's not gospel grace grace is that God comes in and says you owe a debt you can never pay but I'll remove it fully and you'll never have the kind of righteousness you need to enter heaven forever but I got you covered there too both are answered in Jesus the free unmerited favor of God for those who positively deserve his condemnation that's what makes us sing on mornings like this and other days and times in the week. Well, Paul says to them in his salutation, grace to you and peace. I've long loved the works of a man named Jerry Bridges. He's with the Lord now, but he's written uh, some of the greatest devotional books of the past generation now since he's with the Lord. But I've told you before, I look forward to meeting him. Never had that privilege in this lifetime, I emailed him one time, not even thinking that you know he would answer back. He answered back within minutes. I just sent him a little email. Thank you so much. You'll never know how your books have changed my life. He has a great book titled Transforming Grace where he just unpacks this grand truth, the doctrine of grace. And he goes on even from what I've just described to talk about the, living the Christian life also by grace because sometimes we say we're saved by grace but then we feel like God throws all the responsibility back on us to you know, make our way through the Christian life. But listen to these helpful words. They've challenged me for many years and I share them with you to both challenge and encourage you. Bridges wrote, to the extent that you are clinging to any vestiges of self-righteousness or are putting any confidence in your own spiritual t- attainments, To that degree, you are not living by the grace of God in your life. I went to a school, Christian school, like many others, that gave out demerits. Late to class, you got a demerit. Didn't turn in a particular form that you needed to, there were demerits. Did really bad stuff and accumulated, you know, 150 demerits in a semester or school school year. I don't remember what it was. You remember? You got closer than I did. That's not true. Anyhow, like, they, they would excuse you from school and say, we'll see you in a year if you want to come back. They called it expulsion. So you got, I mean, they're passing out demerits like candy. And that's okay when you're in a setting like that. I mean, you don't go to West Point to get hugs and kisses, you know, and positive affirmations every morning when you wake up. No, you go to get discipline, to be trained, you know, to be prepared for life. Well, our college had a similar philosophy. I do think it's somewhat odd, though, that particularly in a Christian school like that, nobody ever talked about giving merits. Now, that'd be hard to keep track of all that, but it could be done, right? You know, in the Christian life, God actually gives merits, but it's not for your good works. Again, it's for Jesus' sake. He gives you the merit of Jesus, and he wants you to live up to it. So it's like he just, he just fills up your merit account and then says, now would you go live like it? 
Live like the person I've declared you to be for Jesus' sake. Some of you try to live the Christian life thinking more along the lines of a demerit merit system. Oh, I did really bad stuff. I must have gotten five or ten demerits from God today. I better do really good tomorrow so he'll give me five or ten merits to make up for that. And that's not the system he operates in. The really good news of the gospel is that God doesn't accept you on the basis of your performance or on the basis of your merits. He accepts you on the basis of Jesus' merits. And his merits are perfect. And Jesus' death on the cross removes all demerits forever. That's grace. Now Paul goes on to say, peace to you. Peace is more than just a well wish that you know, life would be good for you. That you'd feel calm and collected and at ease, that you would sleep well at night. Now, when we talk about gospel peace, we're actually talking, as you can see from the definition on the screen there, the, the, the tranquil state of a soul that is first assured of its salvation through Christ, fearing nothing from God, and consequently content with its earthly lot, whatever it is. And that's where to tie it into the definition of happiness that Matt gave. That, that's why True followers of Jesus really can be the happiest people on earth, even in the middle of the most difficult circumstances and trials. Because we're sure, we're, we're sure that, at the, that at the most fundamental baseline of life, we're good. Not, I don't mean that we're righteous and good people. I mean that we're good with the God who created us, who we had so offended and rebelled against by our sins. But through Jesus, he's dealt with all that as we've been talking about. We don't fear his wrath. We don't fear his condemnation. We don't fear his judgment any longer because he poured it all out on Jesus and there's none left for us. We look through the hardship of these days and the uncertainty of all the difficulty and the disease and the death and the struggle that is our life right now and we look beyond to a time when we will be in the presence of God forever. And that's when you begin to exhale all that tension and anxiety that fills our souls from day to day and we say, oh God, thank you. First of all, thank you for bringing me into a state of peace with you. Being justified by faith, Romans says, we have peace with God. So it is a tranquility deep within the soul, but it's based on the assurance that we really are saved from our sin and from God's wrath. There really is nothing left for us to fear. So consequently, we can be content with our earthly lot, whatever it is. It's just temporary anyhow. I mean, we're just on an extended camping trip. I mean, part of the reason that you go camping is so that when you pack it all up and go home, you, you can look back with great joy that you survived the misery. <laughs> and then you tell your friends about it. Oh, it was 33 degrees and raining the whole time. It was glorious. <laughs> Couldn't get a fire started. Water ran through my sleeping bag. I was hypothermic, but we survived. Want to go next weekend? We're going to tell similar tales about this life, but not highlight the misery, highlight the mercy that we received for these difficult days and the glory that heaven is when we're finally there saying, praise God, because even through the difficulty, we had his grace and we knew his peace. Do you know that though? Can you say, looking at that simple definition, I have that bedrock assurance in my soul that first of all, I'm in right relationship with my creator. 
I know Jesus died for me. I know he rose from the grave for me. I know he's ascended on high and that he is going to return as he promised. I know and believe those things to the bottom of my heart. I live in the assurance that I have truly been saved. Do you know that? Because if you're not sure there, then your peace is marginal at best. Some of you live in perpetual terror that God would show up today. Some of you pray night after night, oh God, don't let me die in my sleep. And, and if I do die, please don't let me go to hell. But you have no assurance that you're not going there. To you, it's kind of like a 50-50 toss-up. And, and are you seeing some of the reasons that God gives us to be at rest, to be at peace? You really can put your head on your pillow tonight and exhale you know, those, those last deep breaths of a difficult day and say, thank you, Lord. I'm resting in peace. You get up tomorrow and go to a job that's hard. A job you might even say, honestly, it stinks. You know, you can still know peace and contentment because that job doesn't define you. The friction that's there between coworkers, I mean, that doesn't define who you are or what you're all about. God, specifically in Jesus Christ, is that definition. Oh, friend, if, if you say, I don't know that kind of peace, you can lay down your endless quest today. Some of you are seeking peace through the feng shui in your house. You're seeking peace through a happy place on the coast of Southern California. Some of you seek peace multiple times, uh, trips to places like you know Disneyland or at least Lagoon. You seek peace in your bank account. Some of you seek peace in a relationship, a, a new family, a new spouse, a new car. Some of you seek peace through sex or alcohol or other substances that dull the ache and the fear and the pain that's way down deep and God says I'll give you peace but like the Thessalonians you too must turn from every idol to the living God so where are you what about you well there's so much more to explore in this letter it's quite a remarkable salutation it's easy to read right through that stuff but if you park it for a moment you'll find some rich treasure there not only the history and heart of three men who love that church, but the gospel itself. Because in this salutation is a God who loves you just like he loved the church. Will you pray with me, please? And Father, how we thank you for grace and peace. When we deserved wrath, you turned it and poured it out on Jesus. When we deserve condemnation, you let it all fall on him. And now we've not only known deliverance from that coming judgment, but we are invited to step in by faith to eternal favor, to eternal blessing. I pray that you would release those today who have a, either a wrong understanding of your grace or have never thought about the significance of entering into a personal relationship with you Oh, Lord God, would you call them right now? May they hear that divine summons that Thessalonians heard 2,000 years ago. And may they in faith answer that summons, turning from all other things that hinder them and turning to you, that they would know the fullness of your grace, that they would know the fullness of your peace. Please, God, for the glory of your name. Father, would you seal to our hearts your words of life, your words of grace, your words of peace. Let Jesus have the glory. Oh, dear Holy Spirit, have your way. Come. 
come do all your holy will. In Jesus' name, amen.